and welcome to the Department of Metal Antiquities. Where we remember what everybody else has forgotten. I am Nick Cameron, and I nearly screwed the pooch on that one already. I had forgotten what the intro was. Uh, of As mentioned, of course, I am Nick Cameron, also of Glacier Musical. I am joined by my good friend, the musical long hair from Leeds, Duncan Evans. How are we doing today? Long hair from Leeds. I like that one. Um, I like the alliteration. And it's I true. didn't even I... notice that until it came out. Yeah, I'm 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 doing all right. I, um, the yeah, I've still got some neuralgia pain and all that, but it's kind of seeming to transfer a bit more to muscle pain, which I think I think is actually a good thing, even though it's still more pain. Nick's holding up a skeleton hand in front of his face, which is both intriguing and distracting. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, it's all good. Um, we've been rehearsing for the show we've got in um, less than two weeks now um, in Leeds. Really looking forward to that. And um, yeah, lots of stuff going on. Lots of good stuff. But yeah, how are you doing? Oh, I am good. Uh, I seem to have fixed the issue I had with, uh, with my camera. I'm no longer looking like I am in a, a Mighty Boosh dance video. <laughs> um, no drum and bass this week, thankfully. I did watch last night when I couldn't sleep. I watched a DVD of a live performance of the Mighty Boosh, which was after the show. And nice. it, it was one of the funniest things I had ever seen until they started the actual show. Okay. And then it wasn't good. It was not that it wasn't good. It's just it wasn't as good as the show because they couldn't do. They were doing all the costume changes and character changes, but they couldn't do the makeup right. So the 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 green Cockney nightmare comes out and he's not green. Yeah, I guess so, when you watch it on a DVD or whatever, that's not as good. I did see that. I don't know if it was the same tour or whatever, but I saw it. Oh man, it must be like two thousand and nine, I think. Likely the same tour. This what they, they kept saying was as they were introducing everybody, what have you been doing since the television show? Right. So right. for the first half hour, it was reintroducing everybody and giving a little bit of goofiness about what they've been doing. Uh, it was hysteric. That was my favorite part of the show. But that's I, I would imagine if I were seeing it live, I would enjoy it a lot more. But that's besides the point. We could digress on that for hours and hours. And instead, let us bring in our good friend, a Keefe. How are we doing today, buddy? I'm OK. Uh, hopefully everybody can hear me well. I am hoping to be. More like a Sean Ryder and less like a Bez today, if you get that reference to Black Grape. Uh, I Nick totally will... get the reference, yeah. D Duncan will get the reference, Nick probably not. Uh, why don't you go ahead and explain that for people who aren't me that don't get it? Well, you, are pro you might be mildly familiar with the group The Stone Roses. Mm, uh, but I've heard the, the name. The other group that group of guys had is called Black Grape. And uh, oh. since we're talking about dance-offs and funky videos and and all kinds of things i'm not familiar with the mighty boosh but black grape i know very well i want to be helpful and leading leading the way or at least contributing and not the extraneous guy that sold them drugs and yells his name over and over into the microphone i want to be that guy i know you do yeah <laughs> bears is like Basically, Bez, it was the Happy Mondays originally, and then they went right. on and did Black Grape, and basically Bez was Oh, that's like, right, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. Bez was the friend who was essentially their drug dealer, but they insisted on 
like when they got signed and they're like, well, obviously we're not signing Bez. And they're like, no, we will not sign this contract Bez, unless Bez is in the band. He's part of the band. He's the dancer. We give him a maraca and he like hypes up the audience and everyone loves him. And it's totally true. Everyone does love him, but he does. He's like the guy that everybody loves. Who's kind of the mascot who doesn't really do anything. He just. So he's, he's their boss tone. He is I, like, see, I don't get that reference. He's the like mighty, the mighty, mighty boss tones have a guy I know in the band who is the boss tone. All he does is hey. this ridiculous dance. He um right. did he not go into politics also, Bez? Is he not a politician yes. now? <laughs> I don't think he did particularly well. well with no. that. So, but he, he's <laughs> no. become kind of a TV personality. He does Gogglebox, which uh, I don't I don't know if you have that. Gogglebox is a British TV show where well, this, he does celebrity goggle box, which is basically where they film the reactions of celebrities in their own homes to watching recent TV shows. And then they show clips from the TV show, like it, it jumps between the actual TV show and their reactions. And it's all supposed to be quite amusing. I find it quite irritating, but I kind of I, I get it, you know. So he does all that stuff. And he's just a kind of a yeah, he's a personality. Everyone knows him. And yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm I already not. I do not believe we have goggle box. No, we or don't. do we have celebrity goggle box? No, although this this is a very good segue to the album. I would say I'm already in the corner mm-hmm. in my room. I'm in the corner, but I'm gonna go put myself in the metaphorical corner for confusing my Manchester British dancey rock bands. And uh I'm very sorry. Oh, it's it's all cool, man. It's it's all good. You're twisting my melon, man. Is Happy- the, uh... Happy Monday is surely better than Stone Roses. Like, surely better music, right? Like, uh, for sure. Um, Just speaking of Manchester, breaking news. Get it in deeper. Uh, Arsenal beat Manchester United today. Well, there you go. There you go. You see, I don't I don't really follow. I'm the uh, only one that cares, and I know that. Yeah, but... Um, and anybody listening yeah. to this who might care would already know. Mm. Yeah. My, my uh, American football team was demolished yesterday, so my season is over, but I have more time for music, so very good. Don't worry, the, the XFL starting up in a few weeks. You can be a Battlehawks fan with oh, the uh, The USFL is coming back in April for no particular good reason. I said uh, no one cares. I don't know why. I got I season have... tickets to the Battlehawks. We sold, uh, St. Louis has already sold out the first game. 30,000 people will be He's, there. That Those yeah, folks are just... starving. So I'm sorry, we're gonna I'm gonna just do this one more digression, then we'll talk about what we're talking about. Nick, what there's this phrase which I've seen referenced, and I don't know what it means. Meet me in St. Louis. What's that? Meet me in St. Louis is a book, Broadway play, and a um film uh starring uh the Wizard of Oz lady. Oh god, what's her name? Judy Garland. Judy Garland, thank you. Right. Uh, it is all based. It, shouldn't it? it is all based around the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, which is, and I heard this even spoken by the St. Louis Sports Commission, who is a nonprofit or group that tries to get major neutral site sporting events here, like the college basketball championship, the college hockey championships, soccer tournaments, stuff like that, and basketball tournaments. And they said that the World's Fair, we really lean on that because it is the only time, it is the only thing that St. Louis can talk about where they are on the same level as a city like New York, London, or Fran- or Paris, France. Right. Because we've all had the World's Fair. 
Mind you, this was one of the very first ones. And then there's a whole because, you know, it was done by white people in the turn of the century. Of course, there's a whole lot of awfulness. However, Meet Me in St. Louis is just so, it because of that World's Fair. Somebody wrote a story, wrote a, it's It's all fictional, but it is probably the greatest propaganda piece for St. Louis. It uh, the final Judy Garland looks into the camera on the final shot and she goes, and we have all this right here in St. Louis. And I swear to God, when I see that, it makes me want to move. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, all this talk of TV shows, entertainment and all that stuff. And my inadvertent reference to people's reactions to watching TV on Gogglebox does indeed lead us into today's topic. So what are we talking about? Today, we are discussing the semi-forgotten, semi-revered Roger Waters solo record, Amused to Death. And before, but this has been on my unofficial list for this, for this show for quite some time. But the reason why it is being done today is because it features the contribution of Jeff Beck, who recently passed away. Jeff Beck is on a significant portion of this album playing lead guitar. And if you're like me, listening to the 2015 version of the record and not the 1992 version of the record, you get a little extra Jeff Beck on track five. Apparently so, but I have the 1992 version right here on CD. Well, this is the CD booklet that I'm shaking. Oh, I, I thought you were noise. about to pull out the vinyl copy. No, I'm At which point not. I would have gotten onto a plane and mugged you. <laughs> From what I understand, yeah. I don't know. I can neither confirm nor deny this information yet, but I will intend to. The the 19 the original pressing on vinyl of this album is considered to be one of the greatest sounding records of all time. Just, I can well imagine perfectly. that. My yeah, 200 gram 2015 edition sounds pretty damn amazing, <laughs> if I'm being honest. But I have been told that that pressing is just like the the greatest sounding album. And it's not horrifically expensive. It is about $150 right now, which I mean, that's extravagant. Don't get me wrong. However, I've seen things that I want that are like 500. So, yeah. So just to get this right, so there are essentially two versions of this album because there was a 2015 reissue which actually is a remix and clearly they brought some different parts in that had previously right. been deleted and stuff. So I listened to the 1992 one which is the one I'm familiar with. Um so Nick, have you ever heard the 1992 one? I have not. I I've not. One of the things uh -huh. that is missing from the 1992 version is it does not have Hal from 2000, yep. 2001, A Space Odyssey, which the yep. chimpanzee on the front cover is actually a reference to that. And yep. there's a lot of referencing, self-referential referencing by Mr. Waters on this one and referencing others and insulting others like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, he takes a little shot at. and But he Stanley Kubrick would not allow Hal's death scene to be put onto the album. It was used in the tour, and we'll talk about the tour a little bit more later, in the flesh, yeah. which happened in 1999, not 1992. Yeah, a lot to, there's there's going to be a lot to unpack about Roger. Wasn't there a value? So, Keithy, which... 
Which version did you listen to, Keefe? So for this pod, I listened to 92, but I remember listening to the 2015 when it came out because Curiosity killed the Keefe. And um, I feel like there was a feud with Kubrick and the Floyd camp in general. Yes. Um, I don't remember what, I think it was Adam Hart mother. Correct. That Kubrick wanted to use in yes. something and Pink Floyd said no to him then. Correct. So he was orange like, that he wanted to use it in, yeah. And so, so he was like, I'll get you, Pink Floyd. One way or another. I'm sure and, Stanley Kubrick, even though he's from New York, has a mid-Atlantic accent. I always picture him talking like this. Probably does not. <laughs> I loved your impression of me on the intro to the classic. Um, re- <laughs> that was brilliant, Nick. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting to remember whatever else I've forgotten. <laughs> I, I had to, I, I, I uh, that whole intro was just an excuse to use the microphone for the first time. So I was just trying to stretch it out a little bit. I'm sure Nick's impression of me would be like, forget about it. Hey, yo, I'm, I'm walking here. Be like that if he was doing me. Uh, I, I have not started your impression yet. I need to get working on it, quite frankly. I don't know that I can get that gravel voice you got. So that might be a little bit difficult for me. Try never sleeping. That's usually the secret. Just don't sleep. <laughs> I did a lot of that last night, and I did I did, did not enjoy it. I woke up at, with a giant, enormous headache at about 2 and didn't get back to sleep till about 4, watching reruns of some classic wrestling program that I wasn't, I didn't even listen or pay attention to. So I'm sorry. Let's All get right. back to Roger. So, oh, yeah, yeah, let's so, get back to Roger. So 1992. So he started writing this in 1987, I think. He is quite slow in some ways well he i mean he doesn't release a lot of albums you know he takes his time is perhaps a more positive way of putting it hey you know he is three out of four in my humble opinion of amazing record you know he's got three he's got four solo records not counting oh god what's that one where he's doing the narration ha um, era no no, no, no that, the, that's, that's his opera operator, that's yeah, his yeah. opera because you know, God, Roger's got to do a French opera. That he he was so angry that the French government wouldn't allow it to be like an official song in France. And I'm like, okay, Roger, come on, man. Uh, we all think highly of you, but nobody thinks as highly of you as you do. But no, it's uh, he did. Um, it's it's like an audio book with a musical score. I don't even know that one at all. I've no I've idea. listened to it, and I mean, I am probably the biggest Roger or I'm probably the biggest Raj apologist uh, that can exist. And I could not bring myself to spend the $20 to own it on vinyl. Okay. It's him like doing all these voices. And because it's Roger, of course it's Scottish. Cause uh, you know, I mean, he's not Scottish. He has no family in Scotland. As far as I know, he likes doing that voice starting with the wall. He's got a thing for the Scottish uh, impression. No, it goes way before that. Okay, okay, okay. He did it on Amagama and grooving the several species of small furry animals, grooving together, gathered together, keep grooving the pick. At the end of it, he's like doing the Scottish Papa Blab. It's basically, it sounds like groundskeeper Willie screaming over nothing. And I I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't, whatever. Anyway, where was I? Oh, so he's got a great track record. He's got four solo records. Uh, Radio Chaos objectively is bad. Mm. No, I absolutely love Radio Chaos. In fact, I'm going to just say I love it more than this one. But there you go. I we love it. We are enemies now. Um, 
I now I will, but personally, nostalgically, I love Radio Chaos. I should mention I also have a radio promo copy of it that a friend of mine from North Carolina sent me. Hopefully nice. he's listening. I've asked him 20 times. Hey, Mike, how's it going? If you're listening. And he, yes, he writes very slowly, but the results are really good. And sure. we are talking about his third attempt. I'm sorry, fourth attempt to recreate Pink Floyd's The Wall. And probably his first proper one. Because he did uh, maybe even fifth attempt. Are we going to count final? Well, cut they did the final the cut, which I kind of think of as a Roger. It's, it's like uh, the first Roger Waters al- solo album and the last Pink Floyd album, and it's the bridge between the Wall and the uh, pros and cons of Hitchhiking. I right. think of them as a trio. Yeah, but I mean, isn't Radio Chaos just the next part of that too? I don't know because Radio Chaos went all bleepy bloopy, which is <laughs> I, get, I get that's probably why people think it's bad, but I really like it. I, I really got a thing for it. It took me a while to get into it, but I absolutely love that record now. Fair but, enough. Um, so I'm I'm sure I'm sure then you really appreciated the mighty bush Easter egg I sent you a couple months ago. Yes, where Tony Harrison this is was... where Tony Harrison, yeah, is actually sitting on top of a copy of uh, Radio yeah. Chaos. Weirdly, I know it was uh, anyway. So. Uh, now let's get into why this, I mean, cause this is going to go way off the rails and we're probably going to go way long and I'm going to get yelled at for being late and I can live with that and I'm okay with that. But why is this record lost? Keefe. Oh, um, I don't know. I think Rogers alternatingly very polarizing and popular at the same time. And so. I think this is probably the, you know, he's always been, a you know, interested in politics and the human condition. And uh, this is, you know, no surprise that Roger, it's like, he goes hard. He doesn't ever go any half measures on anything. He really goes all in. And, you know, when this came out, I think about young Keefe and I think about the listener that I was back then. And I was like, oh, I'm, I really... I'm on board with a lot of this, like, you know, this is stuff that needs to be talked about and things that, you know, Roger's potent lyrics need to be heard and understood. And this music is a vessel. And then, you know, as I get older, I'm like, man, couldn't you just talk about anything else but some of this stuff? But uh, here's an interesting anecdote that relates to the, the album for me is I had to read the book when I went to journalism school, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which Roger the title from and yes. uh, i can't recall the author i was literally just reading that guy's wikipedia entry and he was not he was like alternately honored and also nonplussed he was like it's cute that he took the title and read the book and sort of cribbed the, some of the ideas i had but like it's not really paying tribute to me <laughs> like i was like as pompous yeah, as roger i love it He's called Neil Postman. And yeah, Thank he does this, this quote here. He says, um, the, basically, yeah, he says that the fact that Roger Waters borrowed the idea, so, and this is quoting him, so elevated my prestige amongst, un, amongst undergraduates that I'm hardly in a position to repudiate him or his kind of music, nor do I have the inclination for any other reason. Nonetheless, the level of sensibility required to appreciate the music of Roger Waters is both different and lower than what is required to appreciate, let us say, a Chopin etude. So there you go. Backhanded compliments. That's what is that it, is. is yeah. it, where's the compliment? There isn't one. I think. Well, exactly. 
that is a that is a slap in the face. It's a broadside to the face. He's talking about rock music, and he probably has a disdain for it. Right. Well, to be honest, he's probably never heard this album because actually, ironically, this album is full of like orchestration and loads of classical sensibility to the composition and arrangement. I mean, I don't know, maybe just the fact that it's got drums in it is a turnoff for him. But this this is just look, the guy was born in 1931, I think. And this this is just this is a very old fashioned attitude of classical music is proper music. And these silly kids playing these drums and, you know, electric wah-wah kitas, they're just kind of messing around and, you know, they can't really, it's not art, it's not proper. But, you know, I guess he wasn't a musician, so, eh, what what does he know? Yeah, I, I, I damn it, the video's doing that thing again. Uh, anyway, he... I, what I find funny is that, you know, years later, what does Roger do is he goes and he makes his his opera. <laughs> well, exactly. But, and yes, I mean, the guy is definitely taking some shots at Roger, which I, I I found that funny. But so around the same time that this is coming out, we also have a new Pink Floyd album. And this album basically goes dead in the water at that point because yeah. Pink Floyd is the, the Pink Floyd engine is ramping up again. Roger is famously on record for saying he was in Cleveland, Ohio. And on Friday night, he was playing a 3000 seat theater. And the next night, Pink Floyd was playing the American football stadium, which would hold 80,000 playing his songs. Yeah. And I, I have to say, Personally, I am very much in the camp that it's not really Pink Floyd without Roger Waters. Sorry. I am not going to fight that battle. What I will say <laughs> is the issue is what passes for as a band is always going to be more popular than oh, yes. the voice of the band. And whether or not anybody thinks that the waterless years were Pink Floyd or were not Pink Floyd, they owned the name. And in fact, they went through all kinds of legal wrangling and lawsuits to get a hold of it because Roger thought, no me, no what, no me, no Floyd. Yeah, exactly. However, the jurisprudence disagreed. I will say that uh, as the probably dissenter in that argument, then I am a huge Floyd without Roger fan and think that that's uh, there. Every bit is valid. The only the only weakness there is the lyrics, which are dreadful on most cases, <laughs> except for a couple of songs. Don't yeah. let your wife write your lyrics anyway. She was uh, girlfriend unless, at the time. Unless your wife, Duncan, is a poetess, and I don't know it. But um, Well, actually, unless you're Tom Waits, because people forget, actually, Tom Waits' Tom lyrics are written by Kathleen Brennan, right. which is a yeah. weird one. Like, yeah. you just don't think, you think of him as a lyricist, and he's like, no, she writes it, and then I just edit it a bit. Right, but... and they're so <laughs> in his, it's like the voice of him that you imagine, like his voice, I don't mean his yeah. actual singing voice, I mean his mental voice as an mm. artist, you've associated so masculine and so dialed in and she's written most of it. Yeah. I know we, we discussed that once before, but I will say like this amused to death is definitely Roger's attempt at like sequelizing the wall again. And he yeah. really leans in. I don't, I'm sure he has never listened to a Pink Floyd record without him on it, but I'm also sure someone around him 
uh patrick leonard i'm looking at you the producer absolutely listen to the pink floyd record without roger and there's definite things that they did this is what pink floyd sounds like we're gonna make it sound like that and there's definitely a couple of things that are like oh yeah we'll one-up you uh pink floyd mm -hmm. and um i also feel like there's always been a roger kind of you know once he was out of the band the disdain for all those guys so you know if you think david gilmore is the greatest guitarist in the world i've got jeff beck if you think rick wright's a good keyboard player and a great writer of piano parts i've got one of the most celebrated you know the guy who played with the jackson five and you know the jacksons on my record producing I it should point out that roger waters also had eric clapton on his first solo right. record and he did the same thing to clapton as he did to jeff back which was hi the album's finished come in and here you have eight bars here there there and there and there and i want you to do something good luck and but, <clears throat> sound sound like um dave gilmore please but don't tell anyone i said that yeah uh, especially on the last record i don't know who that dude was but he had the greatest david gilmore clone and he also had the greatest rick wright clone on um is this the life we really want just going to point that out there but that's besides the point and yes he did do that and there you would never guess that amused to death featured jeff beck you would never guess that that pros and cons of hitchhiking featured eric clapton it's not that it, it, that yeah. playing isn't there in, in the case of beck it was on the promotional posters for the album like they were trumpeting that it was jeff beck and i think that was a dig a dig at roger a, a dig from roger to david and um, I will also say, you know, again, there there is very little things that the two camps of Floydians agree on. But James Guthrie is the one person they all trust. And so for Nick's version of this record and the version that restores some of Jeff's lost stuff, James Guthrie is the producer and the engineer and the remixer and remasterer of choice by both camps of Roger and David. So he's the guy they go to when they want something done. And he was responsible for the 2015 edition and Roger trusts him fully. I don't, I, you know, so it's one of those things. I wonder if he is involved in, we haven't mentioned this. I don't even know if we need to, but I wonder if he is involved in the upcoming new remixed version of this record. What? Was There's it, another version. Yes. It, it might be like Mitch Hedberg said, I remixed the remix and it was back to normal. So I don't know okay. what, but there's going to be. I do not know about that. That seems a strange decision, but okay. Um, uh, well, the thing is, is they're doing the smart thing, in my humble opinion, business-wise, because this is one of those records that even the the original pressing is uh, prohibitively expensive. The 2015 yeah. remix is becoming prohibitively expensive. So mm -hmm. what do you do when something is prohibitively expensive in a collector's item if you are the owner of said item? Do it again. Put it well, back yeah. out. Like yeah, right now, if Molly Crew put out the solo record or whoever, oh, I forget who owns the, the rights now. If they put that out again, it they would sell out in a weekend. Self-titled? Yeah, the self-titled. Karabi? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it would be gone immediately because everybody wants it and nobody can get it because it's $500 to start the conversation. Wow. And... So that's what they're doing. They're putting it out again. This one, however, is going to be a half-speed remaster, 45 RPM, four-disc set. I'm not purchasing this, I don't think. It's going to be it's, like $300. It's like $150 bucks to, to begin this. And 
at least that's what it was when it was announced. But as as Duncan pointed out earlier, everything Roger Waters does moves on the slow. And in fact, as we have now turned the clock, uh, turned the calendar over to 2023, I am still getting into uh, Animals 2018. So, nice. you know, this may very well be the same kind of situation. Yeah. So. Another thing then with this album is that I'm, I remember getting the um, the CD booklet that I've got right here um, and just having a read through that when I got this, I don't know, at least 10 years ago, probably more because time flies. And um, just marvelling at the number of musicians involved in this. And it's on the Wikipedia here. I'm going to count them now. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, forty-one. There's I think I've got forty-three there, and some of those are groups, like it'll be the whatever choir or this. So there's forty-three different individuals and groups involved in this one album just in the performance side you could never really call a roger waters solo record a solo record yeah i mean he hardly plays bass on it which is that's fine i guess he's oh he doesn't even play bass on it i think he does on one track the intro to track two and that's it um <laughs> every, he plays a bit of acoustic and a bit of 12 string acoustic on a couple of tracks but basically he just sings and everybody else um, well he doesn't really even play bass live anymore true yeah he's true. got right. um on uh on the wall live the 2015 the wall ge smith played the bass half the time and roger yeah. played it like a little bits here and there and he played guitar here and there I don't know if Roger feels like nowadays he's too good for the four string or what, or if he's going to show David Gilmore what's up or whatever, but he just, yeah, he, he just doesn't do it. Yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, and it's at the level of, sorry, go on. Yeah. I mean, why play the instrument that everybody knows and loves you for doing and has loved you for doing for 50 years? Why keep doing it? Well, there you go. Yeah, so it's actually at the point as well on some of the track, like you have a lot of different drummers, just as an example, you've got a lot of different everything. But there's, for example, somebody, Brian McLeod, McLeod, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. Um, let's let's go with McLeod. Brian McLeod plays snare on tracks three and four, and then hi-hat on tracks three and four. So basically someone's played the full drum kit and then they've oh, gone, doing don't this like again? the sound... Yeah, and it's like we don't like the sound of the snare and hi hat, so get another guy in to replace the snare and hi hat sounds. Like they've taken it to that level. Um, wow, yeah. that's not ridiculous at all. Well, yeah, exactly. I've not seen. I don't think I've seen another album. Oh, oh, he twice. plays bass on track thirteen. Oh, there you go. Then yes, you're right. Okay, fair enough. However, um, this is a double album, and he plays bass on two tracks. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and you also notice that the track that the whole album is um, nearly seventy three minutes, which is, I guess, it was designed for the CD era when, at the time, CDs were seventy four minutes was the uh, maximum length. There's now eighty minute CDs as well, but seventy four minute ones came first. So it feels like a deliberate attempt to fill a CD to me, or, or either that, or they had so much. It's like no, we we're cutting it down to seventy three. You know, like we can't do a double CD, but um, there's uh, it's long. But there's only 14 tracks, which isn't that many. Um, so basically, these are long tracks. Like there's a few short ones. There's a couple of two minute and three minute ones. But there's a lot of 
six, five, eight, nine um, tracks as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, he he had a lot to say. And speaking of what he had to say, let's segue into the whole concept of this one. Is this an attempt to redo the wall? Yes, it is. Oh, my God. So hard and so long is he trying to do the wall this time. However, instead of it being based around World War II and its aftermath, he is now discussing the the invasion of Iraq and Kuwait in its aftermath, which is actually a really, really interesting point. And it's also a great commentary on Gen X. When like when the pandemic hit, you know, I saw all these memes about Gen X. We were raised by TV. We locked the you know, we were unlocking the doors at three and four years old and blah, 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 blah. Well, what happens in the future? So he was very interested in probably far too many things all at one time, which is makes this a little bit strange. The idea is it is a chimpanzee, apparently, who is going to become the supreme ruler of Earth, I'm assuming watching television to understand everything so the chimpanzee becomes a nuclear submarine is watching the battle of tiananmen the protests in tiananmen square and it because it's the idea of channel surfing which my god channel surfing doesn't even exist anymore it it just becomes very disjointed and odd i feel like keefe should make some comments here i feel it's, like i can feel i'm Keith asking you to insult it there you <laughs> yeah, go yeah yeah he's you know um all fair points about roger he's definitely wildly interested in a lot of things he's trying to draw together a lot of source material and he takes the personal story of the wall and the final cut and he makes it a, a little more like that grown-up now has to deal with the modern technology which is the amused amusing ourselves to death and amused to death concept right the technology is going to be our undoing because there's no depth anymore and you know he might have had a point obeying the technology might have been ahead of the time on that 30 years ago and uh so prescient now it seems but at the same you know he is you know obviously again roger always very political the most political of the floyds and um much more concerned with you know, how do we write this wrong? Can we write this wrong as opposed to, hey, this is bad. Um, this one was not- interesting to me because, you know, uh, we should mention briefly the kerfuffle over the 50th anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon coming up where they put a rainbow in a 50 and half of the conservative people went ape nuts over it, saying how Pink Floyd is now woke and they are political and they shouldn't be political I, I kind of feel like this is Roger saying, you know, trying to just put it for straightforward so nobody misses it. This is a political record. Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon is a, I mean, they're all political records, but this time he's just putting it out on Front Street so nobody misses it because he's tired of people not understanding what he's saying. Totally fair, my friend. And I'll also just add, you know, of course, like, you know, Nick and I had. Uh, several discussions about Pink Floyd and, and Roger on our other podcast. And, you know, I know that just any mention of Roger is super polarizing today. Oh, yeah. and, he, and he has said and done some very heinous things, in my opinion. I think his intention is good. His intelligence is not questionable. He's a very intelligent, smart guy when it comes to a lot of this stuff. You don't have to agree with everything he says. I certainly don't. Uh, I do 
I do like that he is trying to unify these different essentially theaters of war, whether it's a, an internal spiritual one, a societal one with technology or these affairs in the Middle East, specifically the Gulf War and Palestine. And I do like that he is trying to unify that. I don't know that he succeeds. We'll debate that up in a second at the end of the record. But I like that he tried. And I think it's a, it's good that he tried. It's important that he tried. And like I said, I always go back to um, the Animals Tour, which, which Nick and I did an extensive run of for the Animals reissue. And, you know, he really felt like he feels like he's a punk. He feels like he's an anarchist. He doesn't feel like he's... Pink Floyd is part of the system. He does. He feels like a rebel and he wants to rebel and he wants to incite rebellion. That is a part of his personality and it always has been. Roger is an interesting gentleman. I guess that is probably the best way to put it. But so why does this get forgotten? I think most of us could objectively say this is a pretty darn good record. Is it perfect? No, and I'll... We'll get into that. We'll get into the the imperfections at length. I am sure, because I'm sure Keefe is going to want to take a little bit of a knife to Roger's ear, and but so as we go back to the Pink Floyd competition, which is something uh, Roger would have done very well to seek to discuss with a therapist rather than uh, his kitchen table and his sixteenth ex wife, but so Pink Floyd drops. And prepares to drop uh, the division bell, and I think the division bell is probably the stronger of the two records, between, no. without without no. Dave, no, without Roger, no. Okay, we'll debate that another day. <laughs> Duncan disagrees, Keefe agrees, so we're, we got a split decision. Either way, it doesn't really matter. I'm just throwing in my opinion. So what happens, as we discussed earlier, what passes for will always outsell the voice of. So Pink Floyd drops in the begins to drop the press cycle. And all of a sudden, Pink Floyd is everywhere. And they are smart enough to start releasing box sets of things that are just overpriced knickknacks. They are on the Home Shopping Network. I remember watching the Home Shopping Network for hours while they were trying to sell me advanced copies of the division bell and back you know box sets that have their five biggest albums but not the wall for obvious reasons as roger waters at this point owns the wall and continues to own the wall and so roger goes nuts and goes into an insane asylum to get over this he, he literally did that yes i did not know that he went into a sanitarium to deal with this. Wow. I think that might have been a mite of an overreaction. So, I mean, this I, happens. I, I feel like Roger, I mean, let's not get too much more into the the, the thing we were talking about earlier. I, I, you know, but I, he's got some issues, you know, um, existing ones before all this. I feel like oh, he's yeah. got a lot of anger, you know, and I think um, there's a lot. Of, yeah. You know, and he's talked about that. But remember, he's yeah. a punk. He's into punk stuff now. He's angry. But what? Global well, I think warming. he kind of already was. And I, and you know what? It's part of it's kind of one of the things I like about him is that he has that 
really incisive um strain to him like he 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 means it when when he sings this stuff he's really feeling it and yeah there's I, some aggression I agree. There. and you know uh, the greatest artists in this world the ones that are always remembered are a bit broken yeah and i i think we can all agree that this is not a healthy response to pink floyd doing better than you Oh, sure. However, then he went to go get help. So, I mean, it all it all checks out. But because of this, there is no tour. And especially yeah, in the right. 90s, in the 80s, if there's no tour, the album is dead in the water. Yep. So it comes, it goes. He even made several videos for this album. None of them are good that I have seen, really. Uh, Roger... Didn't Roger. sell many copies either. So, sorry to interrupt. Like, it's only certification. Uh, oh, hang on. The original release. Oh, no, actually, no, it did okay. It, it hit it it okay hit in the charts. For but, a it didn't do, but it didn't do any golds or platinums Correct. or anything like that. It did, it did get certified in Australia, but I believe at that time the Australian certifications were around the numbers of 35,000, which yeah, is so. not much in those terms. I mean, it's, you know, I'd like to sell that many, but this is for, for, for Pink Floyd, that's nothing. Let's put it Correct. that Correct. I mean, for, for a Pink Floyd album, Pink Floyd related album, that yeah. is, I mean, that's not even, uh, that, that's like, I mean, even Amagama is going to sell better than that. I th I know. think this is why today Roger tours under the banner, the voice of Pink Floyd. Roger Waters, yeah. the voice of Pink Floyd, is now the last two years, and yeah. probably in perpetuity as long as Roger can do this, is going to be under his flag. Because I think people, they know who he is. Pink Floyd fans definitely know who he is. Pink Floyd is, you know, one of the paragons of rock music. But Roger himself... For whatever reason, they don't like him. He his career hasn't gone the way he wanted. I don't know if he thinks he should be the equal of Pink Floyd. He's not by himself, but no, um, he's he's doing better as a solo artist than the other two. I yeah. think nowadays he's. I think he's somehow. I think he's redeemed it basically. I think with marketing and with um, yeah, what you've just said, Keefe, with making sure he gets the Pink Floyd name in there because there there's everyone knows the name Pink Floyd and actually. I think there's loads of people who will, who are fat, who are casual fans who probably actually don't know the names. Um, but as soon as they see, oh, the voice of Pink Floyd, oh yeah, it's that record that you play in the car when we're oh, okay, right? Yeah, go on, I'll go see him with you. Yeah, of course. Oh, the what? Oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, we don't need no education. Oh, of course, that guy. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that um and well, I think and he is doing better now because of that. Uh, but back then he wasn't. Right. Uh, in, in Radio Chaos, he toured theaters. In yeah. Pros and Cons, he toured theaters. And when he started doing, when he came back on the In the Flesh tour, 99, where he debuted three or four songs from this album as well, he was playing arenas finally. But yeah. I think at that point in time, he knew to attach Pink Floyd to Roger Waters. He yeah. knew to play a, a strong, heavy pink floyd set play the songs he wrote plays the songs he sings then he gets these wonderful angels to impersonate david gilmore's voice he i he has found like 40 of them you know one gets big it goes away he just finds another one how there's like three in the band usually his band is now at about 48 people i think there are about 48 people on stage performing with him so one david gilmore drops up bring in another david gilmore they're all there yeah and that's 
But as a solo artist, he is the most successful out of all members of Pink Floyd. Rick Wright. Well, one guy's retired, though. One guy's Rick, Rick, Rick Wright is dead. One guy's retired. And the other guy is honestly doing a show that would not work in a spectacle. Oh, him. I agree. But he I, I'm talking about more the albums more than okay. the tours, even okay. though Roger or even though Dave never had a tour on the on the, the level of anything that that Roger did. But Dave also doesn't do the kinds of tours Roger does. Roger does Pink Floyd tours where Dave yeah. does Dave tours. Yeah, because and... Dave's got Pink Floyd for that. Right. Uh, well, he did anyway. Well, he did. But so, yes. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the situation is now. But so uh, is there? I apologize. Is there anything else that we really need to get on with before we move on to the actual meat of the record, the songs, as it were? Um, just to say, the um, critical reception was pretty good, from what I can tell. Just just looking here through the Wikipedia article, there's one or there's one bad review. Most of them are kind of three to four star, so not absolutely glowing, but pretty good for the most part. Um, is there anything? Yeah, people described it as. Let me have a look. Yeah, all music described it as a masterpiece in the sense that it brings together all of his obsessions in one grand, but not unwieldy package. I'm not all sure. All of I agree Roger about. Waters' obsessions in one package. Yeah. Oh my god! But there's someone in Los Angeles Times who said the result is a is blurred structure, partly improved by the moving old soldier's tale waters uses as for a framing device too much repetition and a certain distance and over intellectualization and um, there's a dearth i'm just going to skip on a bit there's a dearth of the good old pop rock appeal that always lifted the better pink floyd records i have to say i kind of agree with some of that and then someone else in chicago tribune this was a bad review in chicago tribune which said self-importance doesn't equal profundity and the world's most mind-blowing engineering couldn't cover up the deterioration of waters singing and melodic sense since his days with floyd i disagree about the singing i love his voice even when uh, it's no it's i mean i you 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 are you are blinded by nostalgia I, I no, that... I just I just like singers that don't necessarily sing technically very well. I just I, I, like I know all about the, the point for me. It's all about the, that. The point this guy is making is that in the early late sixties, early seventies, Roger could sing, and yeah. every subsequent record, be, you know, he because he did not know. I'm assuming because he was never taught how to sing properly. He yeah. just he just ran it into the ground. You don't put the oil in the engine, the engine's gonna blow. And yeah, by the time but I like—I to... don't know. I like that. Um, I like that rickety. I know you, you know, love like, Tom Waits. Firing love... engine. Oh yeah, that's that's why. And you know, I get that. Like, I get hey, that. Bob Dylan. However, you know... there is there is a significant and noticeable deterioration of Roger's voice. I get. Yeah, I, I get it on a technical level. Absolutely. Yes, that's I all. We're, that's all. We're I just saying. like the deterioration. Um, but yeah, melodic sense. I've got to say, I like it how Roger's yeah. breaking down. <laughs> I like like the, the the when they talk about the melodic sense not being there. I mean, we'll come on to this, but yeah, yeah. I don't I know. I disagree man. with some, that. There is a melodic sense. Sometimes it's not. Maybe. There's a melodic sense. There's just not necessarily a melodic ability. 
Anyway, is there okay? Let we're off the rails. So, is there anything else on the background of this album we need to get into before we actually talk about the music? I don't think so, but Keith, you might. Uh, no, yeah. not really. I um, I do like Roger's voice on here. I think it's not so much the quality of his singing or voice; it's what he does with it. And again, Roger's lyrics and the potency and the feeling is more of a thing for me than. I never expected him to be the technically best singer ever because he never was in the first place. He he could sing. I, I'm just saying, like, the song people remember Roger Waters for that's not on the wall is Have a Cigar, which he did not sing because it sounds like sure. him and it's not him. It's it's Roy Harper. So just And he still harbors there. resentment that he didn't uh, He's get really mad. Time. His take, there's a take out there that has never been heard that he did. We'll find We've out. We've heard it. It's on, um, you can hear it. It's on, oh, um, yeah. There's a behind the music or whatever they call it on um, Wish You Were Here and they play yeah. it on that documentary. Oh. You could probably get it on YouTube and it's like, right. basically it's good, but he's just not quite hitting the note. He's just, he's like, ah! you know, he's, he's, he's not there himself to get there and he just can't quite do it. It's not so much that it's like the most dynamic vocal line ever, but that like, it's almost like a trumpet. You got to be able to like hit that note over and over exactly. again at that high range. And I think it's probably totally. Correct. He's totally okay. Yeah, he's totally All right. All right. Let, let's do let this. Let's take a quick break and then we will get back into this. And welcome, Biggity Back. So we are now here to discuss everything that's going on. Track one. Now, track one starts off very mellow, very definitely not pretentious, definitely not overt, just very calm. Uh, very, you know, easy on the heartstrings. The Ballad of Bill Hubbard. You want to take us out, Duncan? I can do, yeah. Well, I d I'm just going to say now, I didn't take any notes for once on this because A, I figured there was three of us and B, I know it quite well. So I might be sometimes doing a nick and going like, I don't remember this song. <laughs> so, um, but I do remember the first one. So basically this... Yeah, it's mellow, it's melancholy, it's somber, I would say is probably the best word. It's synthy. There's some um guitar -y bits coming in and out. There's some really nice Jeff Beck stuff actually. Um I really like his guitar playing later on. And when he's kind of doing a bit of a Dave Gilmore impression, that that works for me. So um yeah, but you've basically got this sample, which I think is from a TV documentary where it's it's called The Ballad of Bill Hubbard, and it's about uh, uh one of Bill Hubbard's uh, uh, comrades um, in oh is this the first World War I've lost the yes, plot World War One World War One and he's talking about basically having to leave his friend Bill Hubbard in no man's land like he just couldn't Bill Hubbard real you know, quick uh, to, we we should be clear on that World War One was very much trench warfare yes and no man's land was the spot between the trenches where. It, so trench warfare was very gross, very disgusting, very awful, and very slow. Yeah. So whenever they would try to attack, they would run into no man's land, and Bill got very severely injured, and he and uh, our, our friend could not bring him back to his proper trenches. Yeah, so it's a sad story, something that moved Roger, and I guess it links the whole war and TV thing, because it's a clip from TV about war. Um. So, yeah, look, it, it's a really good intro, I would say this, in a way, sets the scene for the album in the sense that it's quite meandering. This is not a song. This is it, like this album makes you wait. It's like, look, okay, this is track one. I'm not going to give you anything in the way of 
like mel- and it's four minutes twenty. So it's this is not a thirty second intro, but it's like I'm giving you no melody. I'm gonna I'm giving you no chorus. I'm not even giving you any vocal lines. I'm just gonna give you some samples from TV and some nice guitar playing over some ambient synths. So that's yeah. what you were looking for, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> what do you got on this one, Keithy? I, I think, you know, it's a very, Roger's a very good scene setter. And I really appreciate what you just said, Duncan. He really, I think what the mature Roger is that you don't need the whole album concept in the first song anymore. And that he really, it's a swell and it's not a flourish. You know what I'm saying? The entire intro to the record, actually, I find the beginning of the whole album tasteful, but slow on purpose and purposeful and not, you know, he doesn't have to barge in. He can just gently, like, let's develop this a little more than he did in the even in the the best Pink Floyd days. Uh, you know, obviously, you get the entire breadth of Dark Side of the Moon in the song Breathe. You yeah. don't get that at all here. And I think it's very telling about his maturity as a writer uh, in a positive sense. And clearly, as as Duncan so perfectly went into detail about all the crayons in the box, he knows not to use them all right up front anymore. And that's also probably a Nick's favorite guy, Bob Ezrin, the Coke fiend. That's probably that guy's proclivity. Throw it all at the wall right away, right away. You know, let's Jackson Pollock this thing. And you don't have to, guys. You really you could really you could really ease in if you want to. I think you guys have really nailed this one on the head. What I'm going to say about this one, the the opening track, is that Jeff Beck's lead work, this melody work, it's perfectly imperfect. The recording sounds different. It doesn't sound, it definitely does not sound like it was recorded in the same session or even in the same room. It's got a very fragile timbre to it, and I absolutely love that. As for not giving you the whole story right away, yes, perfectly, perfectly set. And as we've discussed many times on this album already, it is long. It is it is a double album for all intents and purposes. You know, you've got two 36-minute sides. That's for me, that's that's a double record. And like a Roger Waters concert around this time, and even now, it's very long and very slow. You know, Roger doesn't have an opener. He plays two sets. And one in his first tour, he did a set of only Pink Floyd. And then the next set was all the new new album. And here we have that kind of a that that kind of a thing. It's slow. It's building and kind of awful in the right way. The 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 kind of making you want to get through this, get to the next thing, because this is uncomfortable. This is a watch up a bunghole. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Nick Nick is a poet and he didn't even know it. I just love referencing the watch from Pulp Fiction. Every chance I get. Every chance. All right. Uh, So obviously what Bill Hubbard wanted was not what God wants. Yeah, well, what God wants. So this is a three-parter. We only get part one here, and then we get part two and three later on in the album. And yeah, this is, part one is six minutes. Yeah, this is one of my complaints about this album. Like this, okay, right here. I think we've got the the best and worst elements of this album because I love this song. What God oh, wants. Yeah. 
my favorite track on this album, I think. But we've got part one, six minutes, part two later on, three minutes, 39, then part three, four minutes and eight. So you've got whatever that works out as more like 34, about 14 minutes of this What God Wants. And I'm not sure you needed that. Um, I need that. At the same time, it's great. So the sense of melody, it's there. The chorus, oh, it's fantastic. And I love the lyrics, man. You know, what God wants, God gets, God help us all. I mean, that's just great. And I'm not going to try and sing it, but it is, it's a great melody. It's a great uh, hook, basically. It's very catchy. But, um, and the way it's, ah, the lyrics are just great here. Like you've got stuff like, um, God wants peace, God wants war, God wants famine, God wants chain stores. So he's, you know, he's going through all these um, these dualities, if you like, of all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. And then and it's a comment on the fact that, like, um, I think Ronald Reagan, maybe George Bush senior said, like, God's on our side in this war. And I guess it would have been George Bush senior if it's the Gulf War. Is that right? Um, So. Yeah, so, so it's like it's a commentary on that basically, and I just think it is poetically beautiful. Um, look, there's some cheesiness to the music. There, there is definitely some. Uh, maybe you could argue it's overproduced. I mean, there's 900 people playing on it. Like you know, it's, it's one person playing the E string, someone else playing the B <laughs> string. You know, like it's not quite that obviously, but there's like there's about. Are we five... sure it's not? I, I think there's one dude playing the drone straight, the drone high E on the twelve. And that's all he plays. So it does feel a little bit clinical. I mean, the sound is amazing. And they've used this, whatever it's called, cube something or other special mixing system that which is about spatial, you know, like if you were, if you use headphones, it's really um 3D basically. Um so so it's it sounds great. Um perhaps a bit it could have had a bit more bite and a bit less um of a clinical shine to it, but great song. What you got, Keefe? Mm, not a whole lot after that, but I will say a few things. I don't, I don't think Roger is uh, especially Brian Wilson about this thing, but he definitely lets it go to excess. There's uh, the awesome comedy movie "Walk Hard," the Dewey Cox story, uh, where in his Brian Wilson phase, Dewey Cox is like, "I want an army of didgeridoos, um, thousand didgeridoos." Like he just, you know, it's like one of those things. I will say that like the part one, part two, part three, you know, for a guy who just got smacked by his inspiration about not being a serious artist as opposed to classical music, Roger thinks in suites and he always has actually, right? And anytime Pink Floyd did that, it was because of Roger. And Except um, on uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason. I know, I know, but I think it's mostly Roger and it, it comes from Roger originally. Right. That oh, kind yeah. of, like he's setting up the listener for this this is what's this is the you know uh, kind of built in to the album you know he builds these things in um what god wants is arguably my favorite roger solo song is probably one or two others that are in there true solo songs and and give me roger and give me a listicle of roger's gripes and grievances and i'm here for it like that's his some of his finest work is when he's just rattling shit off and it's brilliant. Yeah. And um, no, no, hey, he's about- a big fan of Monty Python and some of Monty Python's best work. Indeed. And uh, yeah, I think for sure there's a definite anti Reagan, anti Bush senior 80s pushback from Roger. Like everybody, you know, greed is good. Opposite. 
<laughs> What's the opposite of Wall Street? The movie Roger and his entire <laughs> over, you know, and he's definitely anti-capitalist for a very successful multi-billionaire rock star. He uh, he he is a he is a host of contradictions for this one. What I'm going to point out, because I think you guys have nailed the the symbolism and all that kind of very well. If you and nobody mentioned that here is where Roger is taking a different tact, musically speaking, than he did in his first two solo records. Keefe and, Bu- Keefe and Duncan have both pointed out the suites, the part one, part two, part three, which definitely goes back to Pink Floyd. It is on most of their successful albums, has at least one or two of these things. Yep. The, you know, it's on, yeah, it's it's on all of them in the big five. Except, yep. uh, except Final Cut, which I'm not going to... Anyway, uh, Dark Side, you know, Breathe, Breathe, Reprise, uh, yeah. Wish You Were Here, Parts 1 through something, Parts the rest through 12. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't care. It, it doesn't matter. We know. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Then you got Pigs in the Wing, Parts 1 and Part 2, and then you've got, you know, Another Brick in the Wall, 1, 2, 3, and then you got all the other business. That's just how he does. So he is going back to writing in a Pink Floyd-style rather than running away from the Pink Floyd style, because Final Cut and Pros and Cons are very much sister records. However, neither of those records sound remotely anything like proper Pink Floyd. I think we can all agree on that. A little bit. I think anything that has Roger is going to sound like the Floyd. And I don't want to forget to mention that this is probably the best Jeff Beck anything on this record is right here. Yes. On this song, whatever that eight bars is that you referenced earlier, the, his shining, mo- his tone, it's clearly Jeff Beck. It sounds like Jeff Beck. You can imagine him in the studio with Roger behind the glass, mm, nodding. Mm, mm, oh, yeah. Very good. This is what we're paying for. Very good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And 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 Beck just killing it because right. the guy was an assassin. I would imagine it'd be like, it'd be one take back. But the other thing I wanted to mention was he has the female vocalist back which uh, Pink Floyd used to great effect, which Roger has continued to use to great effect. This is what I mean about not saying that he was running away. I, I did say that. I shouldn't have said that. He wasn't running away from the Pink Floyd sound, but he, I think in from here on this album and his next record, he is more consciously writing in those styles of Pink Floyd. Yeah, maybe that's so. my opinion. And I would say it makes perfect sense. Well done with the pun. So Perfect Sense Part 1. Um, I won't talk too much about this one. Um, this is where... I think we could do one and two on this one, probably. Oh, just one yeah. and two. Yeah, they are next to each other on the uh, on the record, making a total of... Uh, not that long, actually. It's like seven minutes in total, basically, with Part 1 and Part yeah. 2. So this is where we get P.P. Arnold um, doing a lot of vocals. I mean, I think she's listed on Wikipedia's backing vocals. I would not describe it as backing vocals. No. She's the vocalist on, like, low. In, fa- in fact, so there's there's actually a great deal of this song, which, as far as I can tell, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have Roger. Oh, no, he plays some synths, so he managed he managed to just be on it. But but he's... Only but, just, but only just. He's kind of just the writer for a lot of this, really. Um so yeah, look, I think these are good songs, or this is a good song. Um, it starts to get a bit meandering here for me, and a bit, I don't know, I start to just lose it a bit. Um, I don't know. Someone else jump in, Keefy. I I did not need eight minutes of Perfect Sense Part One and Two. It's a good song. It would have been good as one song. Uh, 
Arnold is fantastic. She doesn't get enough credit, actually. She's a phenomenal singer. And, uh, you know, I like that he allows, whether it's on purpose or not, I like that he allows other people to shine and take, you know, for a guy we talk nothing about, we always talk about his ego and all these things that are his downfall. He does certainly let other people share the spotlight on his record that has his name on it. Uh, for the third and fourth song of the record to him not be featured, barely. And I also really do love, uh, unlike Pink Floyd, who will usually have like a call and response backing vocals or just a lot of oohs and ahs, even into the later without Roger years. I, I like that Roger is actually what the backup vocalist on here in a little ways. And later in the album too, where he lets his like, you know, when he really wants to, he really lends a gravitas with that voice of his to his own words. And and that's what the song needed, him not to be front and center trying to. I'm sure there's a demo of him trying to sing it like he imagined it. The demo, the guide track, right, would yeah. be disastrous. Uh, yeah. I can only take so much Rogers caterwauling. It's it's, uh, you know, I it's nice so to much. have a break. Yes. And, that's why and, death and, metal and, bands always got to throw an instrumental on there. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> all right i'm good nick anything else or yes i this one i mean you guys both are always meandering it's a bit much for me it's not nearly enough wow i love these two songs this is these two really hit for me i was coming of age you know uh, you know paying attention to current events on purpose more than you know just in in class at the time and i was the only person that i can recall being against the gulf war I never thought we should have been there. I don't believe in, you know, the U.S.'s historical nation building. We've never been good at it, so we really should stop if for nothing else, just because we're, we're bad at it and it just wastes money. But so them talking about watching the war. Oh, the war starting on the ground. Oh, here. And then the Marv Albert announcing. We, you guys didn't even talk about that. Marv Albert yeah, announcing yeah. this stuff like it's a game. And I can remember watching the Gulf War. That was what we did in America in that three-month period. We'd come home and we'd turn on the war. Mm -hmm. And that is so sick. And yet we did it. And so hearing that, it's hearing them talk about that is a really nice memory, a really nice uh, yeah. personal check. It definitely uh, transformed American media. This is, again, my media studies in the mid-90s. Uh, the Gulf War television coverage 100% led to what we have now, the polarization, oh, yeah. the the different networks vying for attention, all of them doing a bad job. And uh, I do love, it's kind of funny, because even though he's kind of he was kind of disgraced, I grew up with Marv Albert as a sports announcer in New York City. So yes, that distinctive voice of his is like Oh, this is the sun. This wasn't No, I know, but I'm saying like he yeah, like yeah, uh like the comfort. This is Kenny there. Albert. Now I yeah, said Marv, oh. this is Kenny. Oh, I think it's Marv though. Is Marv, it Marv? Marv? Yeah, this Marv is Marv. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I apologize. Yeah. It is Ken, the czar Marv Ken, Albert. Ken, Kenny Albert was like a 20 something at this time. So it's definitely Marv and you know, Marv. Yes, that's what he's known for. He invented the term swish for when a basketball goes. Oh, he did? Game. Yeah, he invented that, like, swish, that's him. Oh, if I and, ever cared uh, about basketball, I might know that. Yeah, good good times, good times. Um, Fair enough, Nick. I'm glad you, you know, you're, I'm glad you love that, those two tracks. I, 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 it, that is stuff that just really, that makes this more real. It makes it hit harder. Fair. And, you know, going back and looking back at this from, 
you know, from a very far distance, it, it definitely gives you the feeling of, you know, the bravery of being out of range. Oh, he's got no, segways. She's the next track. Yeah, we do I, that now. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. Or puns. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. So yeah, this this is a good song. This is one that I when I was looking back at this album, I haven't listened to it for a few years. This this one was in my head straight away. Per, and same with God What God Wants. Perfect sense, not so much. Um, but uh, yeah, great song. Again, it's a bit cheesy. It's a bit um there's a certain almost musical theater style production to it, which kind of grates on me a bit, but um because it's Roger Waters and because he's got these incisive, very direct, very um, confrontational lyrics, I, I can kind of go with it. So, yeah, it's it's a good song. It's catchy. It's got a great chorus. It does take its time to get there more than, you know, I feel like if I was producing this, I would say, you know, this this should be a shorter song. I mean, look, it's only four minutes 44, but it feels like this is kind of a, a three-minute pop song and they've... they've Feels a bit stretched out. There's maybe not enough chorus in it. Too much verse, not enough chorus, perhaps. But um, yeah, look, it's it's don't great. bore us. Get to the chorus. Yeah, exactly. Um, Tom Petty. Yeah, and um, but you know, a great, uh, just really brilliant lyrics. Um, and it's actually it's kind of upbeat, and it's got that kind of. I don't know much about American football, but it's got that type of vibe to it of like the American football kind of music they have on in the breaks. To me, that's what it seems to evoke. Um, I might be completely wrong about that, but um, yeah, look, it's 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 a good song. Um, yeah, that's that's it. That's what I got to say about it. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's actually really um, very well said, Duncan. Especially that last part. There is an entire. I don't want to quite say it's a genre of music, but it's almost a subgenre of music, which is the NFL films highlights used to be scored with this epic grandiose music. It's actually marvelous. Like the music is incredible. And, uh, you know, um, I watched the football games here yesterday, the American football, as my team got incinerated by the Philadelphia Eagles, the New York Giants. And it's all oh, rock. It's all. Oh, don't you dare. It's all rock and metal. It's all rock and metal as it go to the commercials now, which is a shame. Bravery of Being Out of Range is probably the second best song on this whole record to me. Uh, absolutely lyrically. And, you know, I I don't, as a, as a theater kid, that tickles a little bit of my funny bone. So I like it. But I could see that it's not going to be for, it's going to make people cringe at certain levels. But me, it always undoes the cringe. It's the opposite of the cringe. It's I, I embrace the, I embrace how cheesy and, schlocky it is a little bit and he and it, weirdly also bravery of being at a range has a lot in common with the song uh megadeth had a record this same year countdown to extinction and there's a song called captive honor which is also about the gulf war which is also about like literally they could be they could have wrote them together and one took one song and one took the other obviously dave mustaine is not roger waters although there are some similarities now that i think about it <laughs> and uh yeah uh you know, generally a good track. And the, and again, probably the second best track on here to me. For me, it's an absolute another banger of a track. And again, I watched that war on television. We discussed it at length, ad nauseum for years in high school because it was the first proper war we had had growing up. And America is, we're a little warlike. We, we you know, we get the guns out and, you know, sun's out, guns out. And there's a lot of sun over there. And so 
he, you know, talking about the Scud missiles, the Patriot missiles, the nuclear submarines, the aircraft carriers, and how brave and all the terrible things that presidents like Reagan and Bush Sr. and later Bush II would say about war, you know, being very pro-war, very, very war hockey. This just really, really fills that void in a way that I wish it didn't. Very uncomfortable, very strong. Totally. And just like this podcast, it's late home tonight. All right. Yeah, the next track. So this is, again, another two-parter totaling. this four-minute one and a two-minute one-ish, so about six and a bit minutes, so not super long. Now, I'll be absolutely honest. I can't massively remember this one, and that's... In a way, I've done this on purpose because when I looked at the names of the tracks, I straight away could sing you probably four or five of these, including some of the two parters. But then there were a few that I thought, I just can't remember how that one goes. And I wonder if it'll stick with me, you know, when I'm talking about it <clears throat> only half an hour or so after listening. And no, it didn't really. Um, I think this was a bit more low key, a bit more stripped back. Um uh, someone else needs to talk about it and tell me if it's good or not. I've got. I I don't think it had any of those big hooks particularly. Um, but Keefy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, wor no worries. It's not that. It's a. It's a pretty nondescript couple of tracks to me, and it is where he transitions to another, you know, quasi topic, and uh, he's you know he is all over the place here uh, on a, on what amounts to, what is almost today would be for sure a double album and uh you know he he as nick would say squiffy he gets squiffy here he's good he's kind of ranging away he had a very strong start three oh of yeah those, that first those first five were just boom and then it starts to level off yeah. a bit and um not memorable is a good way to put it in terms of the whole thing yeah i i could have done with just one of these i didn't need the whole thing I could have done with neither of these. Um, this is uh, another one of my favorite phrases. We're into the soft underbelly. And apparently when you do a double record and you get into the soft underbelly, it goes for a while. It's like the, the belly of the windy man, the long mover, the python. And it's just got to get the Mighty Boosh references in. That's part of this. And I don't remember these songs. They are very nondescript. I... Is this the one about the chimpanzee getting the phone ringing? I don't know, man. Uh, see, I can't. I'm looking at the lyrics and I just can't hear the melodies at all. <laughs> Too busy mixing politics and rhythm in the street below. I don't know how did that. None come? of us remember these songs. Let's. No, they're saying something. I, I <laughs> think I think he's trying to make a reference to. Uh, you know, again, the America in particular, and I'm sure it was the same in in, in Great Britain at the time. The 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 splitting. There are two roads. There's a group of us on one road. We feel like we're rational, feeling compassionate human beings, and there's everybody else doing whatever the fuck they're doing, for lack of a better vernacular. So I feel like that's, in a good sense, that's I think the gist of it. Okay. Well, Roger had. Uh so much freedom to make whatever he wanted some might say he had too much rope all right well okay too much rope i would this is the one about the monkey watching tv right yeah. uh, no that's later that's later oh, damn i think that one's called watching tv um 
or or that I don't know, man. I don't think this is the monkey, but look, look, this one. Think uh, about that for a second. We've been talking about all these like really heavy things. Like, no, this isn't the monkey bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, look, this one I remember a bit more. I don't think this is one of the standout tracks, but I do remember it. Um, yeah, I, I, I. There's some great lyrics in this, and I think they're delivered well. And I think there's some nice catchy phrases but i don't think it's got the big chorus um it, i think it's again quite a low-key song it does i have to say it does still feel like we're in the soft underbelly as nick would say um yeah some good messages but it's it's low-key it's very understated it's a bit ambient from what i remember um yeah, it's all about the atmosphere and what he wants to say over the top of that atmosphere rather than it being the big chorus catchy song. Um, and my feeling is there's a bit too much of that on this album and not enough of the big, strong choruses. Yeah, I think that's a really good description of that. And I, I've got nothing else to say on this one. Uh, you got anything, You got anything, Kiwi? Not too much. I uh, Duncan pretty much said it. Uh, I do think the lyrics are quite good. But again, I, I want from Roger, I think, you know, at heart, he's a songwriter and he wants to be known as a songwriter, songwriter. And when he hasn't fully figured out the song, he loses the plot. And that's that happens a lot here, especially in the next couple. Yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> We're gonna go. I don't got a pun on this because we've already, I already punned it, so I can't do the same pun twice or three times, as it were. We are now heading on to parts two and three of What God Wants. I will just say this about these two songs: I do like the entire bit. However, these do not add up to the first one. Yeah, the, What God Wants Part One is truly amazing. Yeah. Got some diminishing returns here. Oh, one thing I did want to point out. The bravery of being out of range. Roger is now performing that on the current This Is Not A Drill Tour. Oh, nice. I think they did a, some sort of lockdown sessions re-recording of it as well. I was just Wikipedia-ing that, but, um, which people might be able to find. So, yeah, What God Wants Part 2 basically is the same as Part 1, but not quite as good with more of the same type of lyrics. You know, we've got the formula. He's doing more of that. God wants silver. God wants gold. God wants his secret never to be told. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I like the... Um, That's God the exact wants... same thing as he did the first time with different words. Yeah, I do like God wants... Poverty, God wants wealth, God wants insurance, God wants to cover himself. But it's like, yeah, we get it. We we get what you're saying, Roger. You don't need to say it another 900 times. And then a part three, I think goes, yeah, goes off into a bit of a different mood. So it's still the same song, but it's not actually saying the what God wants um, hook. And it's not doing all the gods, uh, God wants this, God wants that. And I remember this bit being... Pretty good, but again, not a particularly standout uh, bit and perhaps not needed. Agreed. Keefy? Extraneous. End of story. Did not yeah. need these. Could have not had them. And um, I I get it. Like, he likes to complete the thought. I never thought I would say this, but, like, I much prefer Unforgiven 2 and 3 by Metallica to these Ooh. two songs. <laughs> Wow. Oh, you'll be unforgiven by many for saying that, but yeah. Because <laughs> I cannot go one episode of anything without bringing up Metallica, as is my weakness in life. Well, well Duncan and I did an episode on Metallica once. Never never trust a big button to smile or Keith to not mention Metallica. Anywho. Uh -huh. 
So yeah, no, nothing more to add there. What God Wants 2 and 3. It, it's basically the, this whole suite of songs from Late Home Tonight Part 1 to here. It's far more ambient than it is melodic, yeah. which makes it all very difficult to be catchy, very difficult to be sticky. So we move on into, if, if you're not enjoying the music, you can turn on a different kind of media and we can start watching TV. All right. Well, we're back to the pop song. This is a very acoustic guitar based thing. I think, is this the one where Andy Fairweather Low is cre- credited with playing the 12 string acoustic guitar with a feather? No, that's the, that's a, that's a track. A in a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. Oh, John Rabbit Bundrick's on this as well. Isn't Any... Don Henley on this one too? Uh, he's on one of them. I don't think he's this one, but yeah, apparently so. So, um, yeah, this is a great song. Um, it's a, uh, you know, an acoustic kind of folky singer-songwriter, quite upbeat in its tone, even though um, it's about some fairly dark stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, I guess it's a, it's a heartfelt, um, tender, ballady type of... Um... No, Andy Fairweather Low is on the next song. Yeah, I know, I know. I think he is on this one. No, he is on this one, but he plays uh, just acoustic guitar, not with the feather. He got the feather out for the next one. Um, um, oh, and oh, and the pre. Oh, there you go. He he first got the feather out all the way back on whatever that track was. That and we yes, played. John Henley is on this song, okay. and none of us heard him. Well, there you go. No, exactly. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, vocals. Yeah. There you go. So I read many... it as a duet with Don Henley, and I'm like, I I don't know that we're using that word correctly. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so yeah, no, I like this. I do think it goes on too long. There's a bit. It's quite amusing. He gets to like they've they've done a few verses, and then they go to a bit of an instrumental break, and then they've kept the bit in where Roger. They're obviously kind of writing this in the studio or arranging it in the studio, and he says to the engineer, "Did we do any more after this?" And um, and and then it's like yes, there's another two verses, and you think that's the signal there, Roger. Yes, you did do more after this, and the fact that you're asking that means you probably think there's enough already there, and there probably should be. So I don't know how how long did it? How long is this track? I feel like it's too long. Six plus. There you go. It's six plus, and yeah, six oh six. It, it should have been three and a half, but it's a great song. If it just there is wasn't. definitely three and a half minutes of great song here. Yeah, that's that's what I think. Fair enough. Uh, at the Glacial Musical Podcast, Nick and I often talk about artists' inability to self-edit. And Roger has an inability to self-edit and likes to have people who will indulge him. And so he is getting very well indulged as we get into this part of the album. It's not that it's bad. It's just not great. And when you've had a couple of bits of greatness, the rest is just okay. And I think that's my feeling about this. I do not hear Don Henley. I don't remember Don Henley being on here. I'll also say we didn't, you know, what we kind of glossed over the the magnitude of some of the people on here. Like he has Toto as his backing band at certain points <laughs> on the reggae style. And that's not a, a joke. Like, no, listen, I, it, I know no, that people. I'm laughing only... because I, I'm just laughing because, wow, we didn't eat. We're, we're at the end and we didn't even mention that he has one of and... the biggest. <laughs> they were big studio guys, right? That was how they claim to fame, how they got started. Yeah, Steve LeCoffer was a yeah. guitar world darling. Yeah, and, and just, in, you know, they were on Michael Jackson's records, which again makes sense with this producer. Um, but yeah, like these guys just show up and just knock out incredible parts uh, that Roger could very well probably do himself except for the lead guitar. 
And, you know, you also don't ever get a sense of like, other than Jeff and maybe Michael Kamen's arrangements, you don't really, like I said, if Don Henley is on here and I don't hear his voice or envision his ponytail in front of a microphone, I don't quite know why he's on here. So anyway, well, just, it's not because of dirty laundry. That's for sure. Li- yeah. Well, lyrically, although you would think like, despite Don's reputation, he and Roger have a lot in common politically, right? For sure. And uh, you could see them wanting to do a song together. Wait, Don but, Hanley did Dirty Laundry, right? I mean, he did. He okay, because nobody, kick, nobody made any, any kick them while they're so. up, kick them while they're down. I yeah, know the okay. song. I know I'm, the just, song. I'm just making sure because I, if I were wrong, I would want to know. When I see a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac, I fucking run the other way. Okay, that's what I want to say about Don Henley's solo career. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> quick to rage, Keepy on a Sunday. Holy shit! Uh, a cat just literally opened the door. Nice. As cats do. They're magical. Yeah, if that's goose. I, he, okay, whatever. So, yeah, this song, and there, there's not a whole lot more to say to it. Uh, it's the uh, lyrically, thematically, it's the, the Tiananmen Square thing, yeah. talking about uh, one of the women who were was killed on TV. Yeah, it's it's a six it's a six plus minute song with three and a half three and a half real good quality minutes, and Yes, Roger is definitely um definitely not uh not self-editing here, not and he's being overindulged and quite well serviced, I think, by by everyone involved. But I think if I had three wishes about this album, the first one would be that it's a little shorter. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this next song is three wishes. I actually just got that you'd done a pun there at the last second, so I redeemed myself and then admitted my mistake. So yeah, um this one, um, yeah, from what I remember, this is this is a pretty good song. Um, we're getting back into the darker, the darker kind of sound. Um, I don't think this is an absolute standout at all. Um, it's it's fine, you know. I enjoyed it while listening to it, but again, I remember thinking while listening to it, I wonder if I'm gonna remember this afterwards. And yeah, I do a bit, but yeah. It's not stuck with me massively. Um, and I have listened to this album quite a lot of times over the years. So that's it. Three right, wishes. Three wishes. A whole lot of meh. A whole lot of meh. Just not nondescript. Almost seven minutes long. I don't need this track. I don't need it <laughs> on here. And yeah, can't, well, can't do any better. I'll be the one to actually talk about this one for a little bit. Uh, one, yes, it's seven minutes long. Two, it's a single. Three. Uh, right. Keefe mentions Metallica. Duncan looks for psychedelia, and Roger Waters mentions the fact that his dad died when he was young. And they're all yeah. in here. Oh, uh, and the sound of missiles exploding. Which there, I can't remember which song it is, but it's on one of the, it's probably on this one. Yeah, you know, one of the first wish was I wish my dad hadn't died when I was so young. Uh, look, I get that it was scarring, but it doesn't need to be in everything you do. I mean, you can do other things. Uh, the video of this is very strange. Roger in a dilapidated old West bar with uh, a gas station out in front of it, because that all works. Uh, wearing his mom jeans up to his nipples. And <laughs> he the, the genie comes up, looks like a homeless guy. And I, I'm going to have to watch this. You don't really. So he makes his three wishes, whatever they are, and you get the wonderful vocal, the wonderful 
female vocals again just you know something in the air don't know what it is blah 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 now you're down to your last wish he makes his three wishes and then a extraordinarily attractive blonde pulls up in a uh, classic ferrari and the genie just looks at him and shrugs okay so that's the video that is roger waters uh and i mean he wasn't that old back then but roger's always looked old so i mean it looked like the age difference was about 75 years and that is always bad for me always bad and i cannot deal with that but uh you know, it, it's kind of a miracle that this album was released, pressed, and is coming back out again. So let's flip it over, finish out side four, which starts off with... It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Yeah, now this is where it starts getting good again for me. I, oh, I do yeah. Long. I mean, it's probably a little over long. I think it's nine minutes. Is that right? Um, I can't... No, quite... it's 8.30. The next one is nine minutes. It's nine minutes. So... so the last three tracks, real quick, are longer than a side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, eight minutes, 30, bit long, but it's a real... It's dark, it's atmospheric, it's brooding, and it's just full of menace, and he's getting this anger out, but it's um, there's something really cathartic about it, and it's... Um, I don't think there really is a big chorus, but somehow it's just... Uh, the, the melodies are, are great. That It's always, you know, from when I first heard this album, this one really stuck with me, and just the, the combination of the really poignant lyrics with this... The, the the music the way it is really emotive and dark and melancholy it just it just really um hits home for me i mean he's really bitter about um andrew lloyd webber i know he's previously accused and i can absolutely understand this andrew lloyd webber of stealing a bit of echoes the da, 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 for phantom of the opera which i mean it is exactly the same like it's the same so it's either a coincidence entirely possible or if you know if echoes came first which i guess it must have done then um yeah it sort of looks that way so there you go um, so he's got beef with um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and uh, somehow he just brings that in. I don't quite know how that relates to the rest of this, um, the 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 themes. But yeah, um, I'm gonna have to read the lyrics just because I mean it's brutal what he says. You know, he says, um, what does he say? Um, Warehouses of butter, oceans of wine. He says Lloyd Webber's awful stuff runs for years and years and years. An earthquake hits the theater, but the operetta lingers. Then the piano lid comes down and breaks his fucking fingers. It's a miracle. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I jumped in the wrong way there. It's, it's brutal. Right. Yeah, it's brutal. It is brutal. Um, now, obviously, I, 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 not, not in a literal. I, I don't like that in a literal sense. But in terms of just the way that he is expressing his rage there, it, I, I think it's brilliantly written. Um, you know, I'm not advocating any finger breaking by the way, but yeah, um, yeah. I am. <laughs> I, I think that Pink Floyd cribbed echoes from some somewhere else in classical music or theater. That's just awesome. my two cents. I always thought that that da, 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 da was very familiar, but like, I know that Roger has a gripe and I think also there's another song Phantom just is closing here in America for the final time ever, at least for now, as they've been the longest running show in, in Broadway history, surpassing Cats and things like Chorus Line that ran for decades. So and and um, Phantom is the most metal musical mm -hmm. theater production, right? It's like the one metalheads love, right? A, a yeah. lot of them. 
and um, has had metalheads in it. And I think actually Halford has expressed interest in doing it someday. Um, it's a miracle is actually a good song. I was going to come here and talk about how like the last 33 minutes of the album should have been the, the second 33 minutes of the album instead yeah. of the last uh, of a 72 and a half minute album. I don't need four songs to comprise 33 minutes, just unnecessary in general, but it's a miracle is really good. And, you know, his rage aside, it doesn't really, again, thematically go with the album at all. But like, I like that it's, I like that it's there and it does kind of amuse me. I'm going to disagree about the thematic. You, you pun in there, amuse. I, anyway, we'll come on to that in a minute. Hang on. We're not, we're not after the pun. I get to talk. No, I know. He just did it. Keep, keep, you preempted the pun. Oh, that's not cool. Anyway. I pun blocked you. <laughs> I get to talk about the song now. You could. I would like to. So this one, I do think thematically it works. It is. Because a lot of this is pulling back American, uh, pulling back the, the the American veil. You know, we've got oceans, we've got warehouses of butter, we've got oceans of wine, we've got famine when we need it, we've got designer crime. Basically, is just showing how the monkey is being taught how to control the masses. So it's very much in in line with in line thematically for me. Is uh, does it need to be nine minutes? No. Could it have been chopped down to about three or four? Probably. So another very long winded, very unnecessarily long winded song. And I'm gonna agree with what Keefe said. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of fluff here. There, you know. We're, we're three songs in where it's where we've said the entire time this song should have been shorter. And mm -hmm. when you're on a 72 minute record and you're on the second to last track and one of the, mo the most consistent comment between the three of us has been this song needs to be shorter. Yeah, there you go. And hopefully you found that amusing, but it doesn't kill you. So you're not amused to death. There you go, the final track and the title track as well. Um, yeah, uh, this is a more memorable song. This has a very catchy sing-along, again, quite upbeat-sounding chorus. Um, yeah, look, it's a, it's a pretty good song. I, I don't think it's my favourite on the record, but it is pretty good. Again, it has a lot of that musical theatre, upbeat kind of thing going on. And, you know, I, I get it. It's not... It's, there's some cheesiness about that, but I, I can get into it when it's Roger Waters bringing here. some cheesiness. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty cheesy. It's pretty cheesy. Um, but, yeah, I, I do like this. Um, again, I, I don't think it needs to be nine minutes, really. Um, I think there's loads of ambient stuff on it. Uh, that's right. Is this the one which goes into a choir for ages, or is that the previous one? I don't even know. But there's there's some extraneous stuff on these two tracks. Neither of them need to be eight and a half or nine minutes, in my opinion. Um but yeah, look, I think this is a pretty good song. It's a pretty good end to the album. It's nice and catchy. It's got enough of the Waters bite, but it's it's like a Roger Waters pop song, which he does do really well. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty strong end to the album. Just doesn't need to be nine minutes. Well, well said. Uh, brain damage eclipse outside the wall, amused to death. Roger does it again. This is Roger's. He's really good at final album closing songs. 
you could throw echoes in there too even though that song superseded metal for a long time live and you know roger's very good at summing up a point even if he has a hard time making his point and um you know i do like catchy roger i wait he's he is very clever and and he, he writes very good catchy choruses he should do more of that i i'm not asking him to go become something he's not but you know straddling that line between dylan that he admires and wants to be lyrically but also like make a catchy rock song make a catchy pop rock song i wouldn't kill him to have a a, a song more straight ahead sometimes completely agree with everything yeah. that's been said here this song is it's the sum up however he is more verbose than than Keefe and i are uh, after we've been at motley crew for two hours and sorry and th- that's the problem with this album and i'm just gonna move on into my sum up of this record it, there's a lot of super high quality stuff here there is probably honestly the best pink floyd album you could ever have is here lurking in the weeds but mm. it's not completed that way he he wrote it that way but he didn't have the personnel to make it there so well, anyone editing him enough yeah that's part of the personnel you know if if dave were there they would have been they would have fought they fought in the studio over everything and you know what? Sometimes Roger won, sometimes Dave won, but there was no fight. Yeah. And that's what makes some of the really good Pink Floyd stuff the best. That's why Roger's next record, which doesn't come out for 25 years, is far better. There was a fight in the studio with the producer. The producer said no to Roger Waters. This is some dude that he that Roger doesn't even know. And he says no. Roger has actually been so egotistical and smarmy about it. He said, it's not even really my record anymore. But oh, he really said that. Oh, yeah, he Roger says a lot of things, and it's best not to pay attention to everything he does. But I like a lot that he says, but yeah, you then you read one of you like, okay, no, not that one. That's yeah. enough Roger Waters for this week. <laughs> and that's kind of and that's like the problem with this record is as you listen to all 72 minutes of it, there's some absolute catchy wonderfulness, and there's some absolute None of it's bad. Let me be clear. There's nothing bad on this record. However, there is a lot that you don't remember. And and if you don't remember it, Roger's trying to change the world, trying to save the world, trying to teach the Americans a better way. It becomes meaningless. Yeah. Because we've forgotten. But all of that said, spin it or bin it. Of course, I am a spin it. This is still... Even with all of its flaws, and it's got quite a few, this is still my favorite Roger Waters solo record. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, for me, it is a spin it. It's not my favorite Roger Waters record, I don't think, but it has some of my favorite Roger Waters stuff on it. I would probably say Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking is my favorite Roger Waters record, followed by Radio Chaos. I've got This Is The Life We Really Want, and I've listened to it like twice, and I don't know, it all just, I don't know. I need to just probably go back to that and give it some more time. But anyway... This one, yeah, look, everything you said, I agree with there, um, Nick. Um, yeah, there's some amazing stuff. Yeah, but you have really have to dig for it. 
there's enough amazing stuff for me that it's definitely a spin it. But just one one thing that strikes me is that in Pink Floyd, they got away with doing these massive, huge, long epics like Shine On You Crazy Diamond. It's catchy. It is, it's got the pop song element, but it's also like a zillion minutes long. But that's because with Pink Floyd, they went off into these psychedelic rock jams. There it's it like, is. Yeah, that it, it's true though. Like forget I know, that. I know, it, I know. Forget what point we're trying to make. Let's just go all wacky and just do some cool noises on synths and and then like Gilmore can do a big long solo. And I feel there's a bit. This just feels a bit too serious. It's like, oh no, no, no. We gotta just, we gotta just have like five minutes of two chords on the synths while I just read some poetry, kind of thing. It's, it's like, you know, everything's got to be about the meaning. Like, you know, you can't just go off and do a crazy psychedelic solo because then we're not talking about war. And it just feels like he's maybe trying to push that a bit too much. Uh, and I'll then... just say, no, they could have done a psychedelic solo. And when you talk about those Pink Floyd epics, yes, they go on these massive improvisational suites of music that, you know, are memorable. Yeah. I remember David Gilmore's solo from Dogs. Yeah. And and even um, pros and cons, like I remember they go into this blues thing where it's just like it, it's like he's got Clapton in the studio and he's like, all right. Yeah. You know, you just play blues really well. Just do a blues thing for five minutes. But it's cool because it's just it's just a great blues rock break. And it has not much to do with the rest of the album, but it still somehow fits it as part of the journey. Whereas, yeah, this all feels like he's no, it's all got to be. We've got to put another sample of another person talking about war, but just for seven minutes while there's not much going on. I don't know. So, yeah, look, basically, I agree with you, Nick. It's a spin it, but it's flawed. There's just too much of everything, and it, it could be half the length, and it would be amazing. There probably is a pretty sweet 45-minute record here. I reckon. 35. I would, say, I would <laughs> say, yeah, 35. It should have been the right number. I'm going to say this. I think... The great thing about Pink Floyd, Roger or no, is it's sensitive, it's sweet, but you can also unlatch your mind for a minute and just listen and just ha and just listen, have a passive experience. And Roger, for his whole solo career, he expects and demands a lot from his audience. He, he believes that his audience is going to come on this journey with him. Most artists do. Expect, there's an expectation. You're going to come along with me on this and be rewarded. And this record, as much as I, it is a spin for me, as I like to say, it's a stay list for my playlist. But it nice. it definitely has moments that just make me like, oh, I want to turn this off, but I'm not going to because I know something good is coming. But where is it and when is it? So it's, yeah. it's, it's a try. It's a, it's a endurance test to follow this record a little bit more than the other ones that are a little more straightforward but it's a stay it's a spin and when uh, i was listening to this one today before we started recording my wife kept coming in to you know I, I need help with this i need help with that and it didn't bother me that she was interrupting the you know the eight minutes of too late to home it's like no i'm trying to get this thing uploaded i'm trying to get my camera to work that was what bugged but that was what bugged me not that I had to miss a little bit of the monkey going down to the kitchen. I mean. <sighs> well, the monkey has left the kitchen and um, gone into space. And um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this strange extended metaphor, but um, we're there. We're at the destination point. And uh, were we amused by Roger Waters's album? Yeah. Were we amused to death? No. Um, no. bored to death sometimes oh I don't know. um I don't know. also you know like the first monkey shot into space they don't always come back 
Okay. Do we have anything else important to say this week? Because we have we have jibber jabbered for a minute. This is going to be an endurance test for the listener. Uh, so if uh, nobody else has anything to say, I will say thank you very much, Keefe, for joining us this week. It is always a pleasure, even though we've got like this weird sister wives circle where I do stuff with you, you do stuff with Duncan. I just, I mean, we're all so it's nice to get everybody in the same Zoom room, uh, in the same room. <clears throat> Yeah, it's always, yeah, always a pleasure, Keefe. Absolutely, always good to chat over the airwaves and to see your face and all that good stuff. My favorite audio thruple. Ooh, that's <laughs> that's hot. With that, I will say thank you very much, everybody, for listening. This is the Department of Metal Antiquities, where we listen in case you don't have to. Goodbye. <laughs>